Welcome back to the most accurate podcast here at 404 Football. As always, I'm your host, John Daigle. Joined today in the midst of training camp, all the notifications, all the news happening behind the scenes, none other than friend in life, John Pawson himself. John, how's it going? Uh, it's going good, John. It's good to see you. I'm uh, uh, My wife is out of town this week, so I'm doing the single dad thing, and it's nice to have some adult interaction, such that it is. I don't know how you treat weekends like that, but I know sometimes men, women, when they go solo, tend to panic, uh, especially when it comes to dinner. Are you someone who goes delivery every single night, or are you capable of getting in the kitchen and cooking yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm cooking lunch for Max here and there, and then... Uh... Uh, definitely a lot of eating out dinners. I don't want to mess with uh, cleaning all the all the dishes and all the pots and pans and everything. Is there a go-to lunch you cook? Because when you say cooked lunch, I don't know if you just slap something together, beans on toast, and call it lunch for him. Uh, today you did a, a chicken and cheese omelet with some uh, okay. salsa, salsa on the side and a, a slice of sourdough bread toast. So yeah, he he, he does pretty well. My dad, and it's a big show, so we'll get into it right after this, but very quickly for everyone. My dad, when I would walk out for cartoons early Saturday morning, he was up the one time of the week my mom got to sleep in, and he asked, do you want breakfast? And I responded, yes, most of the time. It was not ever, what do you want? It was, do you want breakfast? Because he could only do one thing, and that is slap ham, cheese and a fried egg onto white bread spread mayonnaise on it and then put a bag of cheetos next to that and hand me the plate every single time i asked for breakfast that's what it was so i i am capable of cooking i love doing it uh my future children if that happened will get something although that's okay we'll get something certainly better than that mayonnaise sandwich still not sure where that came from but nonetheless Big show because training camp news which we're about to dive into after that we will be diving into our ideal and perfect first round, the top 12 players we believe you should be prepared for, and then thus studying for afterwards, thinking you were going to get this player at your certain draft slot if you already know where you're drafting in your home league. Not to mention at the end of the show, friend Drew Davenport of Football Guys is coming on because we're going to clear the air and discuss where we should now be targeting Deshaun Watson Alvin Kamara and Dalvin Cook and drafts based on their current court cases. Fun conversation with them coming up. But before we dive in, remember everything going on behind the scenes, you can get access to via the promo code and underdog four for four. That is the number, the word four, and then the number four again via a $10 deposit for a new user. That's it. Use the promo code four for four, deposit $10 to a new account, and boom, you have access to the site. You can also right now remember 10% off of ProSub if you sign up. Any sub, the betting sub as well, but also using the promo code 44 and underdog, that is another way to gain access to everything we're about to talk about. Having said that, Paulson, Tim Patrick was the most unfortunate news of training camp so far. Suffered a torn ACL in practice, and immediately, as we expected, since it was a non-contact injury, came down diving for a catch, got ruled out for the year. What adjustments have you made so far after the Broncos lost Patrick for the entire season? Yeah, from a, I mean, that's a tough break for Patrick. He was actually one of my favorite uh, late round receivers to draft due to his uh, snap percentages and stuff the last couple of years. He's been really productive for them. Um, I think this injury now makes the ADPs for uh, Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy make a lot more sense, although I think they might even both go up further from here because of this, and that would make them not make sense anymore. But 
Um, I can see it now where you, know, you have Sutton in the top 20 and maybe Judy in the top 25 um, or thereabouts. Uh, I think Judy now has a chance to play in two receiver sets. He was only playing in 65% of the snaps last year, and that's a big issue, big red flag for me if you're trying to draft him as a low-end wide receiver too or, or middle-of-the-road wide receiver too. Um, but now he's got a chance to sort of return that ADP uh, value. Uh, Sutton and uh, Judy definitely look more appealing. And then now KJ Hamler, I think, is a sleeper who would likely play on three receiver sets once he's healthy. He's a fast, fast guy. Um, and, uh, you know, his ADP is really, really low. So I, I would assume that's going to spike a little bit now that uh, Patrick's been ruled out. Judy, definitely the biggest winner here in my mind. You mentioned potentially play on two wide sets. I don't think they have anyone else that can play in two wide sets since that was the only question mark really with him over Tim Patrick. So he's locked in. I did a higher stakes FFPC draft last night, redraft team with pro football focus, Ian Harditz, and we took him to start the fifth round. And the argument is, and by the way, that's around Adam Thielen, uh, Gabe Davis, Deontay Johnson, Marquise Brown. And the argument is like now that spot for Judy is entrenched. So we're not worrying about him being on the field at all. What happens afterwards with his performance, whole nother argument, but at least we know for sure now he's on the field in two wide sets. So yes, Love the Judy bump. KJ Hamler, I'm expecting his ADP, which was around 175 overall, to settle into 140, 150 as a strong third receiver with Russell Wilson. And then honestly, since we have a lot of listeners who play in these deep 20-round leagues, dynasty leagues off waivers, and just rounds and formats where you need to draft deeper players, the one player that stands out to me who's been getting more first-team reps post Patrick injury is their fifth round receiver, Montreal Washington, who actually did score 30 all purpose touchdowns on 49 collegiate games at Sanford. And more importantly, last year, he had one game against SEC competition because I think this is very important, something Christian Watson never had his whole career. And Montreal Washington actually recorded. 13 touches for 143 yards and two touchdowns from scrimmage as an offensive player against Florida last year. Also last year, 91% of his routes came from the slot. So that's where he can logically fill in as a rotational player behind KJ Hamler. So deep leagues only, but that to me is the fallout, not to mention probably more Greg Dulcich as well for your tight end three, tight end four premium leagues. Yeah, and they've got still have Travis Fulgham on the on the roster, right? Uh, he had that real nice stint for the Eagles last year. Um, Kendall Hinton, Seth Williams, Tyree Cle- uh, Cleveland. So, uh, you know, that Washington call might uh, might work out for you. Another receiver who suffered an injury was James Washington of the Cowboys. Carted off the practice field with a Jones fracture and expected to miss six to ten weeks. I have heard, listening to local radio, local Dallas radio, that the, he's actually – leaning closer to that 10-week mark, which is what we expect from a Jones fracture initially. So what adjustment did you make to reflect on the Cowboys' passing game? Yeah, so I uh, bumped up Jalen Tolbert a little bit. Uh, Noah Brown apparently has had a good uh, uh, camp so far uh, and you know a few receptions and yards to the uh, peripheral guys there. Uh, probably will be Lamb, Tolbert, and Brown to start, and I'm you know, three receiver sets while uh, Michael Gallup works his way back and James Washington works his way back. Uh, Tolbert's uh, apparently not having like the best camp ever or anything like that. He's not tearing it up, but he's he's in a great spot. I mean, you can't ask for anything more for a rookie receiver to be 
catching passes from a good quarterback and uh, you know, having that third option being open in the, in the Dallas offense after CD lamb and Dalton Schultz uh, get their targets. So um, I'm leaning Tolber right now over Brown, but we'll see how that sort of plays out and see if maybe Brown can, um, you know, move ahead of Tolbert in my, in my estimation or my uh, projections. Um, we'll see. Uh, I'm not, it's not a super confident pick. I think I took him. Yeah. I was fairly excited to get him in the, uh, 10th round of a 14 team, uh, league at mm. the end of the 10th round. Uh, once that news broke, uh, I took him one spot after Gallup. Uh, and I think he's been going a few rounds after that, but, you know, looking at him as maybe the third option, in that Dallas offense, I think it's, uh, there's some upside there. You're now going to basically have to choose between Jalen Tolbert and the handful of guys in his range, like Devontae Parker, Chase Claypool, Rondell Moore, Tyler Boyd, Kenny Galladay. That's really where he goes right now. But as you mentioned, maybe not the best of camps, but also still third round equity and literally has no choice but to be glued to the field. Noah Brown, primarily a slot receiver. So he will Tolbert open in two wide sets for an offense with like arguably the best quarterback for any rookie wide out. No one could argue uh, Garrett Wilson in his range, for instance, um, the best opportunity overall. There is no one in his path, unlike Sky Moore as well. So yeah, I still love Jalen Tolbert in the mid-10th, mid-11th of 12-team leagues, just given the fact that no one is there to compete. I'm okay with that. I also noted in my team preview that I bet him for Offensive Rookie of the Year, 16-1. to 1. That award is wide open this year, considering we really don't have any quarterbacks that are going to lay claim, knowing that Kenny Pickett's playing with the third-string offense and not doing well in camp right now, so much so that Mason Rudolph is apparently may start for the Steelers. So overall, yes, I think that's wide open. I love Jalen Tolbert still at his increased range. Yeah, and I would and I would just add that you know I just pulled up uh, his uh, prospect profile at Reception Perception, and Matt Harmon was pretty positive about it. He doesn't in terms of the success by route, um, almost all of them are green. There's two that are yellow, and everything else is green, which is a good sign that he's been uh, pretty successful on uh, many different routes. And he uh, just to quote pull a quote for Harmon, he said, "I wasn't expecting him to be a big time separation player, but he was a pleasant surprise during the charting process." his ability to thrive in multiple areas is a huge plus. So uh, he, I think he has the endorsement of uh, Matt Harmon. So that's good too. And one more receiver injured at camp as Van Jefferson underwent minor reportedly minor knee surgery and actually has a chance to be ready for week one. That's the report right now. We've heard that Ben Skowernick has an edge over 150 pound tutu at will for that role. Jefferson's wide receiver three roll out of camp. Remember the Rams led the league with 11 personnel and 86% of their snaps last year. But also, we don't want to attack Scourneck and Atwell, Atwell, right? Like we know this just means more Allen Robinson. Yeah, I'm pretty high on Allen Robinson this year. He's 18 right now and half PPR. I didn't adjust Van Jefferson down too much. It was, you know, just a little bit of alarming. Uh, we didn't know for a while there. And then now it sounds like to me, it sounds like a scope. I had I had two scopes in uh, one on each knee when I was in college playing basketball, and I was back in action three weeks later. It sounds like the same thing here. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm assuming he's going to be out there for week one. Where do you have Robinson now? You mentioned after you bumped oh, him up. Robinson, I have him at 18 and in, in uh, half PPR, and of course Cooper Cup's the number one overall receiver. I have Robinson at 14 ahead of DJ Moore, Terry McLaurin, that range. But also that tier of wide receivers, as we'll talk about when we 
discuss our ideal first round is wide open. I think it gets wide open after Devontae Adams, personally. Uh, everyone after that has a blemish, which makes like even the second round this year, I think it's the riskiest it, it may ever be in the last decade. It is absolutely insane. We'll talk about that more later, though. Also, for the Rams' offense, the report is that their running backs, Cam Akers and Daryl Henderson, are splitting first-team reps. Sean McVay said, and I quote, I look at it as we got two starting running backs. We need to get them involved. They need to be on the field. I think it's healthy for them to be able to supplement one another. Jordan Rodrigue also said that they are splitting first-team snaps pretty evenly so far. Where now are you pushing Akers down to, knowing that he did, prior to this report, in my opinion, still make an argument as a every-down workhorse we were hoping was efficient 100, or I guess it's two years removed from an Achilles tear. But knowing this report, where do you have him now? Well, I still have him at 18. Um, but with, you know, I've been, he's a player I have not drafted. Uh, I've been shying away from him. Uh, I'd rather have, you know, Ezekiel Elliott or even David Montgomery and uh, half PPR. Uh, just the Achilles worries me, but what was what was getting him by at that point in the draft, whether it was the third or fourth round, was the fact that he was likely to see 18 carries a game and we were going to get bell cow usage out of him because whenever he was healthy last year, they were treating him as the bell cow. So I'm a little skeptical that suddenly McVay is going to go to a, a committee because he really hasn't uh, run much of a committee uh, with the Rams. Uh, but He's, you know, Acres is not somebody I'm trying to find ways to tell myself a positive story about. I'm already a little shaky on him, uh, where he's going. And, um, you know, I probably would put him below ETN and Brees Hall at this point, uh, given, given that news that uh, Henderson is likely to play more snaps than uh, we were expecting. As I wrote in my Rams team preview, I had him higher if only because I expect the Rams touchdowns or how they score touchdowns at least to regress. Matthew Stafford, of course had the highest pass play rate inside the five and on the goal line last year. And that allowed the Rams to score a ridiculous 80% of their touchdowns through the air. We're not expecting them to sustain that at all. And so I was a little bit higher on acres in particular, but now this move for me means, and a lot of people were already there. So it's not a change for a lot of people, but this move for me means definitely Travis Etienne over acres, uh, Brees Hall to a lesser extent. And then, yeah, like you, I have him now sandwiched in between the, David Montgomery, Elijah Mitchell, A.J. Dillon, J.K. Dobbins tier, one that I've actually been just trying to avoid altogether and try to have two starting running backs by the time we get there. So I did push him down, I think, into that RB18 to 20 range like you. Yeah, and I think this was just underlines that uh, Daryl Henderson is a is a really good late-round pick. Um, you know, we, we look for yeah. players like that where um, they're going to have a weekly role so you can plug them in as a flex when you need to, but if something happens to the – the quote unquote RB one, then all of a sudden you have a, you know, a fantasy RB one, you have a top 10, top 12 guy. And Henderson has shown that when he's the, the, the bell cow or the lead back in that backfield that he can produce. Another backfield conundrum is per Broncos insider, Benjamin Albright, the Broncos first team running back reps between Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon hasn't been 70, 30 as reported by some shadow beats per the reps chart. It, it's actually been, 54-46, 60-40, basically, in favor of Javante Williams, which is very similar to last year, considering in their games together, Javante Williams averaged only 
one more touch per game than Melvin Gordon, 15 starts alongside one another. Where does it stand for you as we talked about it last week? Any changes from that opinion you had? Yeah, and I, I looked at when I saw those reports today, and it was it was a big buzz today in terms of what the uh, projected split was going to be. It was Cecil Lammy who said eighty to twenty originally. Now he's backing it off to seventy thirty, and then as you mentioned, uh, Benjamin Albright said fifty four forty six from the actual touch charts. I looked at my split and what I had him projected for, and it was fifty three point six for touches just between those two players. Uh, for for Williams and then the the rest forty whatever it is forty six point four whatever it was for the uh, for Melvin Gordon so um, I, I that that whole split there really is going to decide whether or not Javante uh, you know returns at his ADP and right now he's fancy RB eleven at underdog I did move him up from about sixteen to twelve or thirteen I. I'm looking at him there behind Barkley and ahead of Connor, and I, there is so much upside there that if there were an injury to to Gordon or if it is a 65 or a 60 percent uh, share for him, then he's going. If he if he's getting 60 percent of the touches uh, between him and Melvin Gordon, then he's very likely going to return uh, low end RB one value. Um, so the, the really the question for me is not so much 70 30 80 20 or anything, but is it 55 percent or 54 percent? For, for Javante Williams, or is it 60? And if it gets close to 60, then he's going to return value where he's at. And if it's something like 65, then he's going to be a, you know, a great pick at where he's going at this point because he's going to just produce enough fantasy points to return value on that. So um, that's the big question to me. You know, the, With the, the Melvin Gordon coming back, I was just – it just sort of – you know, put things back to what happened last year, but this is a new regime. Uh, Javante Williams does have a year of – uh, experience under his belt so he's better able to you know handle all the different facets of the game and uh, there is that you can you can tell yourself a story if you want to about his uh, upside he's certainly from an advanced stan- uh, rushing standpoint he's really good I mean the pro football reference uh, yards after contact per attempt uh, the um, broken tackles per uh, attempt uh, numbers are both really good I think he was top two or three in both of those metrics so um really talented guy can catch the ball. And just the question is how, how many uh, touches will he cede to a pretty talented guy in Melvin Gordon? Anytime someone cited those numbers, which I was aware of last year, I always just said, yeah, but has Vic Fangio ever seen a broken tackle rate numbers in his entire life? No, it doesn't matter. Uh, And so, yeah, the question is really like, will talent rise to the, the cream will talent rise to the top. I think that's what I'm trying to say here. Um, But like we mentioned last week, if you are drafting like a lot of people, as if you have one team, your 12-team home league, I don't think you necessarily need to take a chance. And you can avoid the landmine that is Javante Williams if his ADP is higher, like in the mid-second round. But for high-stakes leagues, large field tournaments where it's top-heavy and we're trying to actually like win the whole thing among a pool of teams, I don't mind still drafting him as an RB2, maybe even RB1 if you start with a... Travis Kelsey or Mark Andrews or a strong wide receiver in the first round because like we have to assume we're right anyways. And again, for those type of tournaments, assuming we're right means Javante Williams handling a 730 share because that's how he truly breaks out and is literally going, can finish as a top five back. So I still don't mind drafting him in the second, third round of these large field tournaments, but in regular 12 team home leagues, again, I don't think you need him. Another update. 
Deontay Johnson has now ended his holdout and signed a contract. And it's a good contract for the Steelers, honestly, because his classmates, Terry McLaurin, A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, and Debo Samuel, all signed for three- to four-year extensions over $20 million annually, whereas Johnson just had two years tacked onto his contract for a little over $18 million annually, which allows him to also hit free agency again before he turns 30. So I think a great deal for both sides. Where do you stand now knowing Deontay Johnson is back in the mix among this Pittsburgh offense we are still expecting to struggle overall? Yeah, I mean, Deontay Johnson is one of my favorite receivers uh, from a route running standpoint. Definitely a favorite of Matt Harmon's. I love guys like this. Uh, I mean, Harmon was was on Deontay before he was a top 10 receiver. He was a wide receiver 20 two years ago and then wide receiver eight last year. Uh, so just a great value, I think, for fourth, fifth round last year. Uh, and he's going in the same range this year. Uh, so the question, I think, is now that he's back at camp and that that's good because I think the the – the contract situation was definitely a great cloud that was sort of hanging over. You sort of had confidence that they would get something done, but you know, you, sometimes these things extend longer than you'd like and they go into the season or they at least uh, go long enough into camp that it affects their performance in week one or week two. This is now, you know, this is all taken care of. And now the quite big question is, do they have a quarterback that can give them the ball? Uh, apparently Mitch Trubisky is really struggling in camp. Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Mason Rudolph, has been the best looking uh, quarterback in terms of performance at camp and may end up starting for this team. Uh, Kenny Pickett's been okay, but not great. And they're not expecting to start him anytime soon. So, uh, so the real question is, can they get enough uh, production out of the quarterback position to replace Ben Roethlisberger, who wasn't productive on a per attempt basis, but he did call a lot of passes and threw a lot of passes. So there was enough volume in the, in the, uh, Steeler passing game to support all these guys, especially Deontay Johnson. So um, I have him at 17. I think, you know, he's, but he's been bouncing around for me. I had him probably as high as, as 12 or 13 when everything was looking, you know, like uh, looking pretty kosher at the start of the, the summer, but then I have kind of been moving him down with the contract situation and with uh, Mitch Trubisky's uh, struggles in camp. So I'm going to be keeping a close eye on that uh, quarterback situation in Pittsburgh, because that's going to really affect Deontay Johnson. Only eight teams in the last decade have actually attempted 600-plus passes for three consecutive seasons, and that's what the Steelers are up against since Rossberger threw 600-plus times in back-to-back seasons before he retired this year. So I am expecting them to be run heavier. And if that's the case behind one of the league's worst offensive lines, look at Justin Edwards' offensive line column on 4-4 for more on that, then I am – Absolutely worried at just the fact that a new quarterback, well, possibly new three new quarterbacks, does perhaps ruin Johnson's target monopoly and leading the team in target share in three consecutive seasons, including last year's career high, 28.4%. So I definitely still prefer to wait on Chase Claypool, one year removed from a team high 28 red zone targets for 11 touchdowns. And I don't like to assume he's going to break out with what we believe will be a a smaller margin between the two 
and targets him and Johnson, since that does then remove the accountability of Chase Claypool and his career struggling with a 32% contested catch rate the past two years in particular. So everyone blames Roethlisberger for the inaccurate deep targets. Yes, but Claypool also hasn't been able to use his big body at all to battle for catches. So I still want to put that on him, and maybe that means he still won't break out. But I can get a player of his profile, his talent in the 10th round, and that can still be used as an edge, as a bet against Deontay Johnson rather than drafting Deontay Johnson as a top 20 player. So that's still the way I handle it. But honestly, overall, like if we just miss out on Steelers players altogether this year, I think that's okay too. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth looking at uh, George Pickens uh, later. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's a non-zero chance that he outperforms Claypool. Uh, just a, back, a note on that offensive line, I, did, I was actually talking to Connor Allen in Slack about that offensive line, and he, he said the same thing you did, that they were just terrible. But I looked at... Uh, Football outsiders last year, they were 11th in adjusted line yards, and then they were 28th in adjusted sack rate. So a lot better in the running game than they were uh, in pass protection. And uh, just looking at the uh, – actually, I think it's flipped. I think it's 11th for uh, – let me double-check that. Uh, 11th for – yes, 11th for adjusted sack rate, uh, 28th for uh, – adjusted line yard. So I had that flip. So they were a lot better in pass protection than they were in the running game. Uh, they did add James Daniels, a guard uh, from Chicago and Mason Cole uh, center from Minnesota. They had the third most uh, money net money spent on the offensive line. So they are trying to shore that up. So I, I would expect this offensive line to be a little bit better and they were already pretty good in pass protection. So uh, I'm not too worried about that facet of it. Um, I just, you know, I think Deontay Johnson is really good and I, he's the one that I've, you know, him and Najee Harris are the two players, and Freermuth too, I guess. But uh, those are the, the players that I want from Pittsburgh. I'm not taking too many uh, shots on uh, Claypool right now because it just seems like after a kind of a down year that he had, um, that they went out, they uh, uh, drafted Pickens, they drafted uh, Calvin Austin as well. And I don't, just, I don't know if they're trying to replace him or they're just trying to replace Juju Smith-Schuster. And now with Deontay extended, Claypool's, the odd man out essentially knowing they have the other three under contract for possibly, at least yeah, the possibly for the next two years. Yeah. Uh, and finally Irv Smith, everyone's favorite tight end, even on underdog had surged to the tight end 11 tight end 12 overall, which is insane. Uh, underwent thumb surgery, still only questionable for week one. That's pretty much what we're eyeing right now. He believes he'll be back. We'll see though. Where does he stand for you? Do you budge on him at all? And what range is he in now? You know, I've, I've been a little bit lower on him. This the tight end two rankings are really weird. I think this year, I think you can really, you know, after Freermuth, uh, maybe Cole Komet, you can really rank them in any order, and it will seem logical if you look at it through the right lens or your lens or whatever. Um, so I've, you know, I thought his ADP was getting a little out of control, uh, getting into low end tight end one range. I certainly think he has that sort of upside, uh, especially if the Vikings passing game, you know, the volume there is increasing, like we're. Uh, uh, expecting it to uh, under the new regime. Um, but, you know, you've got Justin Jefferson there. You've got uh, Adam Thielen and KJ Osborne's a pretty talented third receiver. So, you know, how many catches really are we looking at for the, for the tight end there? So I sort of left him where he's at because he's, I had him at 18. Um, and just because I thought uh, that he'll be back for week one and I wasn't all that high on him anyway. So I didn't want to like dissuade people from drafting him at that point in the draft. For me, I thought he should always be behind. So as we've done more, as I am getting more into redraft season now in these 350 
and main event FFPC drafts, I, I'm noticing if I miss out, even in a tight end premium format, like the players I want afterwards. And the only two tight ends I genuinely keep going back to after the top five are gone. And then in the later rounds, it's Alberto, especially after the Tim Patrick injury, knowing like this solidifies Alberto, who was the tight end 26, tight end 31 in fantasy points per game his first two years behind Noah Fant. Like just to be in that range, even like a, a fringe tight end two on less than 50% of the team snaps in both seasons. And now we, we practically know he's going to play more snaps, especially after the package injury. Like I keep going back to him thinking his ADP is far too low as the tight end 16, 17, when he should be a top 12 player, honestly. And David Njoku, another one who his ADP is extremely low. It's actually very easy to get him in the 12th, 13th round. And like second contract, extreme athlete, the kind of profile we want, only 26 years old and still top five, top three in routes run last year in games Austin Hooper didn't play. So like everything is there except maybe Deshaun Watson for David Njoku. So those are the two players I keep going back to in that range rather than sticking with Irv Smith, Pat Fryermuth, Mike Jasicki, all those guys anyhow. Yeah, I think uh, I would add Cole Komet to that list. I think he has a lot of upside as the number two option for the Bears. They did almost nothing at the receiver position to really shore up uh, stuff behind Darnell Mooney. Uh, and Komet, I think he was second in targets last year, 92 or something. So he's got room to grow. And that was, you know, he's a young tight end uh, coming up. And did, I don't think he caught a touchdown pass last year either. He did not. 92 uh, targets and didn't have a touchdown. I think he was a, had the second most red zone targets without a touchdown after Cole Beasley. So uh, I think that will change and there'll be some regression there. So he's somebody I'd like to try to get if I if I miss out on that uh top group or if I don't get Dalton Schultz or uh, TJ Hawkinson, I, I like your Albert call. I've been on him. Uh, he's been bouncing around a little bit. You know, you hear the stuff about uh, Russell Wilson, not throwing to his tight ends or throwing over the middle. And then you hear the, the Greg Dolchich talk. And, uh, you know, I, I did a spit take when I heard a beat writer say that Dolchich uh, offers more speed than Albert O who runs a four, four, nine 40 yard dash and is six foot, six inches tall. And um, I think he had a top, uh, very, very high yards per route run. Uh, yeah, the fifth highest yards per route run at his position last year. So um, that's a good indicator that if he does get a lot more routes, that he'll be he'll be very productive. And then Njoku calls is good. I mean, when I when I thought that Watson was going to play, you know, maybe get suspended four games. Uh, right now it sits at six, but who knows? Uh, but Njoku's been jumping all up and down the, the those t- tight end two ranks because it's a very big difference to go from. Um, Deshaun Watson throwing the ball to Jacoby Brissett and how that offense is going to look in terms of being run or pass heavy. Russell Wilson also, as we know, second, at least top two in percentage of targets thrown into the end zone since 2018. And with Patrick no longer around, who do you think he's thrown to when he looks up and sees 6'5", 258 Albert O waving his hands in the back of the end zone? 6'6", yeah. Buddy. (laughs) Only one person he's throwing to. So well, him and Sutton. Him and Sutton will get some targets. That's true too. too. Uh, and so that's where we keep standing on at tight end, especially in premium formats, knowing like there's a real chance that these players break out. You can flex them if you get running back and your backup wide receivers wrong as well. With that, we will be right back after this message. Right now, if you sign up at Underdog as a new subscriber, not only will you receive a free pro subscription to 4 for 4 with access to all of our off-season content, including our around-the-clock Discord conversations, Underdog will also match your deposit up to $100 by 100%. Literally mirror it. 
and there are no catches. Just download the Underdog app. Use the promo code 4 for 4 when depositing. That's the number 4, word, the number again, and presto. This practice, I believe, will prepare everyone for what we think their first pick should or will be in the first round of 12-team leagues. Yes, these will be our rankings. We'll jostle them around a bit and discuss why we have those players where we do. But overall, I just want to make sure we prepare everyone right now to go into their draft if they know their slot and just say, this is actually the group of players I think I can take and will have an opportunity to take with this number. And with that, Paulson, I'll let you pick the 101 and start us off here. So are we uh, are we talking half PPR? Are we talking full PPR? What's our let's pretend system? like it's full PPR? Okay, full PPR, and so we can discuss th- the differences as we move along. Okay, so I would just say with the one hundred and one, the reason I ask is because I think in half PPR, Jonathan Taylor is uh, my clear one hundred and one. I mean, I think you could make a case for Christian McCaffrey. I think if you get into full PPR. Uh, there's definitely a case you could make for Christian McCaffrey if you want to sort of ignore his last two seasons of injury history and want to draft him uh, at 101. But I'll, I'll take, uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but I'll take Taylor 101 in, in both those formats. Well, this is going to be easy because in full PPR, I do have McCaffrey as the 101, and I, I've done so. I've taken already FFPC leagues as the 101, including my pros versus Joes a couple nights ago. Um, remember, in eight full starts under Matt Rule, he hasn't been healthy, but eight full starts the past two years, McCaffrey has averaged 17.5 targets, 17.5 carries, 7.1 targets per game, a 20% target share, and he's handled 85% of the team's running back touches inside the 10-yard line in that span. So... 101 for me is McCaffrey, but it's okay. We can put JT at one, McCaffrey at two, because I think that's where we both are, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. Cool. Doesn't matter. Yeah, everyone pick Taylor and McCaffrey. I know a lot of shows go in-depth on them, but there's there's literally no wrong answer. Just take one. You're fine. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit burned. I said this on a podcast the other day, is that I took Christian McCaffrey at the 101 in back-to-back Scott Fishbowls. And I'm a little bit like the first year I was able to overcome it and win my league uh, still. But last year it just sunk me enough and I, I'm just a little bit burned on him. Uh, I, I think there's also the Dante Foreman signing. And I don't know that that necessarily is going to m- make a big difference for him, but maybe they're trying to take a little bit of a load off of him. And so he's not going to have that uh, overwhelming workload. I think the ta- I think the Taylor pick is, is safer and you have a great offensive line there in Indianapolis. And we know that team's going to score touchdowns. So he should be uh, a pretty safe pick there at 101. And Taylor is my one-on-one in half PPR because I think the touchdowns that he will inevitably score make a big difference here. What about the third player for you? So in full PPR, that was the, another reason why I was asking that question because you know for me, it's between uh, Cooper Cup and Derrick Henry. And I'm guessing you might be a little bit lower on Derrick Henry than that. Um, I think Cup offers you, even if he regresses, he offers you quite a bit of uh, value at the receiver position. He's still going to have a, a very good year. Um, I guess maybe that uh, Matthew Stafford shoulder injury is slightly worrisome on that front. But uh, to me, and I, I don't think that, uh, a lot of people have this, but I have Henry as my third running back in, uh, in half PPR. And then in full PPR, I think I still have him ahead of Austin Eckler. Or, no, I have Eckler one spot ahead. So maybe I can't even decide on myself who my top running back is. So maybe we just go uh, Cooper Cup. What do you think? I am good with Cooper Cup. My right. wide receiver one, especially in light of the Van Jefferson news. Either way, though, yes, Cooper Cup, we are not getting away from him. Just to finish 50-plus 
fantasy points ahead of the next closest receiver last year, even regression won't land cup outside of the top five. He is, yeah, he is a high. Yeah. I was just going to say he's a very uh, safe pick. And even with regression, he should, you know, has a good chance to finish number one overall. So it sounds like we definitely differ at one Oh four, because for me, it's Justin Jefferson. Uh, I have him over the other running backs, knowing that there's a discussion among the other running backs. Thus I'm, I'm not sure we can say we're certain about who it should be, but I think we we won't argue, maybe we will, that Justin Jefferson's the overall wide receiver two with a real chance to finish as the overall wide receiver one. I'm on board with Jefferson at four overall here in a PPR with, due to that d- debate between Eckler and Henry for me uh, with the next you know next running back spot. I do think that Jefferson, Jefferson is cl- the clear number two, and you could even make a case for him as the number one receiver. So 104. Let's go ahead and settle on Justin Jefferson. This is where we're at right now. And then I have a little discussion about the running back you choose, but it sounds like you are high on Austin Eckler in this range. Uh, I have Austin Eckler one point ahead of – you have to forgive me because my my head has been in a very half PPR uh, headspace. We, that's how we I can pretend rank. like this is half PPR. Uh, honestly, <laughs> like this would this would be my top four in half PPR, so it's fine. Well, that's okay. We'll, we'll stick with PPR now that we switch. Um, yeah, I would have Eckler one point ahead of Henry in, in this range, but I wouldn't uh, – you know – Henry was on pace for a you know career high 36 catches last year, which it makes him less of a his pass catching or lack of pass catching less of a uh, obstacle for people to overcome in PPR formats. And he was super pretty. I mean, he was a clear clear far and away RB one uh, last year before his injury. So who are you debating here at, at five? Galvin Cook is my RB three. Uh, I think especially after Irv Smith news. Either way, we're going to perhaps get him having a career high in targets. And everyone talks about the 11 personnel, Kevin O'Connell and the Vikings will run. And that's true. And they will use Justin Jefferson, a la Cooper Cup with more shallow targets and just allow him to use his his explosiveness for more yards after the catch. But like lost in all this is the fact that for his career, Dalvin Cook has averaged 5.1 yards per carry from 11 personnel as well. CJ Hamm is still on the roster, so they will go continue to do some 21 personnel, but like the stars have aligned for Dalvin cook. Who's been top two among all running backs and touches per game. The past three years, like the stars have aligned for Dalvin cook to have just as good of a season. If you happen to miss out like on the Vikings passing game. So we don't have to put him here because like you, I'm very high on Eckler's floor. Like, I don't know about a ceiling per se, but just being top three in targets per game among running backs the past three years, like that's, the floor is as stable as anyone else too. So I'm fine with Eckler, but I do think Dalvin cook should have an argument. How close do you have uh cook to Eckler in PPR? Eckler. Well, Eckler is my next running back. Okay. So we're again, we're nitpicking here. Why um, don't we, why don't we agree to put Eckler here? And then I will uh, give you Dal- Dalvin cook, wherever you want to put him next in this, in this okay. exercise. If that's the case, then yes. Producer Sal, Let's go ahead and put <laughs> slap Austin Eckler's weightlifting face onto 105 for those in the video. Uh, we can go Dalvin Cook at 106, but I'm curious, does that mean you would take Dalvin Cook over Stephon Diggs and Jamar Chase? Because that's what we're losing out on here. I think in a, you know, I think in a PPR, we talked about the second round, right? Uh, you, you briefly touched on it. And the late second round's dicey 
at receiver. And I agree with that. But get, I'm getting into these drafts, and it's just a little, you don't feel comfortable with some of these receivers they, you're supposed to take at the late second round. And the player that I keep coming back to is always Leonard Fournette. He's going pick 24, and he's always available in the end of the second round. And, you know, I think there's some concern about his weight, but he's he's shedding pounds as it is. So, so my point is, is that if you are gonna if you are guaranteed a running back in the late second uh, or in the middle second in this situation, uh, there's somebody there that you want, then it's okay to take a receiver here. Uh, you can go receiver, running back, and then even into the third round, James Conner's available. So if you do want to get two running backs out of your first three three picks, you can do that. And by by that notion, you could take uh, a Jamar Chase here at, at uh, what six. Mm-hmm. But if you Jamar want, Chase. if you want, to, if you want to take Cook, that's okay. I'm not going to fight you on it. I have Dalvin Cook ahead of Stephon Diggs and Jamar Chase, so I'm going to say Dalvin Cook. Uh, I do. So let's go Dalvin Cook here at 106. I do have Diggs and Chase ahead of Eckler, but again, we're just nitpicking here. It's fine. We're agreeing on a on a top 12, and this gives everyone insight into what they should be looking at, especially in the middle of the first round. And like you said, uh, like even as much as the industry, even us ourselves, tout CD Lamb. Like I, I think CD Lamb has blemishes too. So like after the top 10. I genuinely think like the entire second round, third round is like the diciest, like I mentioned at the top of the show, it's ever been. I mean, I think the top half of the second round is nice. Um, that, that back of the hack for the second round or, is just dicey. Like it just doesn't feel great uh, with a lot of the players that are there. And you feel like you're going, especially with this uh, Mike Evans uh, thing with, you know, Chris Godwin likely to be back week one or close to being yeah. back week one. And then the Julio Jones thing, it just worries me that his volume might not be where it needs to be. I mean, he's been driven being drafted in the middle of the second round late second round it was always kind of a no-brainer but now it's a little dicey we lost him in the top 12 he was there for a little bit at the end but we did lose him so 107 to you knowing the wide receivers are still here and as we both mentioned i think it's perfectly acceptable to go digs or chase at 105 or 106 over the running backs but where do you have now yeah and i would mention i think derrick henry is fine here in this in this range as well um but uh let's go chase here if that if you're okay with that i'm okay with that I will I will make this easy for Sal because I have Diggs 108 and my argument for Diggs over Chase, I think I've said it on the show a couple times, but I'm going to keep make it because I really think Diggs can finish as the overall wide receiver one because right now, even at 108, because he's behind a couple others, he's essentially getting discounted since last year, everyone looks and says he didn't have a ceiling, but they were misdrafting him for what he did the year prior. His first year with Josh Allen, of course, led the league in basically every receiving category, targets, receiving yards, catches. Was not expected to sustain that. That Those are crazy numbers to sustain, and yet everyone was treating him as a top-five pick the following year, last year. And what did he do? He actually lived up to the opportunity. 9.7 targets per game, led the league in end zone targets, and his rate of throws 20-plus yards downfield increased from 9% that first year with Josh Allen to 17% last year. But even then, even with all that abundance of opportunity, increased opportunity, still finishes the wide receiver 10 in fantasy points per game. So like the results weren't there, but everything you want to see from what your wide receiver gets was all there. And so he's being discounted for some reason because of the results. So I am very high on Stephon Diggs. I definitely think he should be in this range right here. Yeah, and I I don't disagree with anything you said. Uh, His efficiency dropped. Um, Pretty, pretty significantly, which is, you know, concerning. You go from 96 yards per game to 72, which is more around where his career averages were. 
uh, about 72 yards per game. So I, I would rather go with the, you know, the young stud receiver that tore it up last year and probably will be a little bit better this year in terms of his knowledge of the game and experience. But I, you know, no problem with digs at the end of the first round. So that that's, I'm fine with that. One Oh nine to you. I think we have to take Derrick Henry at this point. Do you have a case for anybody else or did. I think this is where receiver drops off after Devontae Adams. So I have Devontae Adams right here. Also right now, in FFPC leagues, I don't know if you noticed this, you can actually get Derrick Henry like at the at the first round turn. He's basically being skipped on by a lot of people. And the argument would be that in averaging 30 touches per game last year, like that has to live up post-injury age 28 when like even the year prior, he also had over 320 touches under his belt in both seasons. So it, he has to be an anomaly. That's the argument here. And I think you look at him and he is an anomaly anomaly. Mm-hmm. I think he's he's built different. I don't know. Different. He to me, it he strikes me as an Adrian Peterson type that's going to buck some of these changes as long as that foot is healthy. Um and it appears to be you know, the for me, him com- being able to come back and play on it late last year, even though they weren't the most productive games of his career or close to it. Um, the fact that he was able to be cleared to play and played at all tells me that the foot's not an issue. Um I, I'm surprised that he's, his stock is falling this much, but there is, I think there is ageism in, in fantasy football. I think, you know, you're, we're writing this guy off now at age 28. Uh, it used to be 30 for running backs where you wouldn't draft a, a running back over 30. And now at 28, we have the, the, the player who was the overall RB1 through eight weeks by a wide margin, um, you know, falling in drafts. I think it's a little bit odd. But if you want to, if you want to go another direction, I'm okay with it. You are. You're very positive on Derrick Henry. I don't want to take this away from you. Uh, and, and honestly, like he'd be in my range in like around 12 because that's when it gets dicey with DeAndre Swift, Joe Mixon, Najee Harris, Sa- Saquon Barkley, that group. So this is fine. You're very high on him. We can put him here. Uh, I will make it easy and go Devontae Adams at 10, though. And again, this is where I think the wide receiver cliff is. Everyone likes CeeDee Lamb. I, I really don't know. Well, I at least know that they've never used him as they – said they're going to use him. And yes, there's more opportunity than ever, especially since Michael Gallup is likely not going to play week one. We don't even know if he's going to open on the team's pup list. And now, of course, no James Washington. This should all be there without Amari Cooper for CeeDee Lamb to have an amazing season, perhaps even lead the league in catches and receiving yards. But they've never used him as such outside of the slot. So it's still a a very big drop-off, in my opinion, from Adams to CeeDee Lamb as the next receiver. And I think, you know, you're, you're right on Adams in that we don't need to worry about him really changing teams or um, going from Aaron Rodgers to Derek Carr. I mean, I, I think if he were if he stuck in Green Bay, he might be the number one overall receiver, or number two, or maybe top, you know, maybe after Jefferson, number three. But um, so there is a little bit of a discount there getting him in uh, with Las Vegas. Uh, but, you know, he and Derek Carr have a ton of history from college, and I don't, I'm not concerned about them making this big trade and then not using him. Uh, peppering him with targets. So I, th- I think that Devontae Adams is a good call. Uh, as for C.D. Lamb, I would love to get him around the one-two turn. I think he's um, obviously has great opportunities. He's got a good quarterback, and uh, his route running really, really did well over at uh, reception perception as well. So that when those three things line up for me, um, a breakout season, even from where he's been, which has been pretty good, um, you know, 2,000 combined yards in the first two seasons, 
Uh, not everybody does that. Uh, so uh, I, I think at, at the one, two turn, he's, he's a real strong, strong pick. If I can give him the start of the second turn, I'm or sorry, the second round, I'm, I'm very happy. Does that mean you're throwing him here at one eleven to make sure no, who, the who second are, round turn doesn't get him? We're probably talking about Najee Harris here, uh, maybe Swift, or who who are our options? I, I think Travis Kelsey is the Kel- next. Yeah, I would here. agree. Kelsey uh, is a so a nice a nice uh, person to have here uh, at a position where there's just not a lot of production. And again, after Devontae Adams, I mentioned the receivers to have blemishes like. I think a, I think a lot of positions in general have blemishes. Um, you could even say the same for for Travis Kelsey in this stage of his career, since he did sort of show it last year. Uh, finally, not finishing as the overall tight end one. We don't know if we have complete confidence in this Chiefs offense. Which, even in trying to find strong free agents to fit Tyreek Hill's role, it, they still don't have a one for one talent anymore like Tyreek Hill. So you could argue. That Tyreek, that Travis Kelsey is also worth fading in this range, but given the drop off, I think I'm pretty confident with him here. Yeah, I like I like Kelsey. I like Mark Andrews in the you know the second round, middle of the second round. I've been flip flopping between those two at the top of my tight end rankings. I think they're both really good picks. Um, Kelsey's efficiency numbers have dropped off, but the, the volume should still be there, and he's obviously one of the all time greats. I think we threw Sal for a loop here. I don't think he has a Kelsey picture to slide in there at 111. Oh, he does. Oh, okay. no. He's prepared. He's got it. And 112, the last player in the top 12, is left up to you. I will, ju- I will just – and I think it's among a group of CeeDee Lamb, who you mentioned, DeAndre Swift, Joe Mixon, Najee Harris, and the person I think will be right here in late August, when we all get to Vegas for high stakes drafts, I think Saquon Barkley is going to be right here and the uh, 110 to 112 range, honestly. But the one player I will argue against is actually who you mentioned. I don't think Najee Harris should ever be treated as a first round player or top five running back, honestly. Uh, 29 gains of 20 plus yards on 945 career carries dating back to Alabama. Just the RB8 in points per game last year, despite leading the league in touches with 381. He handled 87% of Pittsburgh's backfield touches and saw 94% of their saw 94 of their 106 targets, 88% of the team's targets, and it didn't even matter. Still wasn't able to crack the top five. So I just want to avoid Harris, honestly, at all cost, and just rather hope he falls for value in the mid-second round because he is doing that in some drafts right now. Well, that's an inter- interesting take. I mean, he was RB3 uh, overall because of the 17 games played um, in PPR. And then you mentioned RB. he was RB8 in points per game uh, behind Mixon, Kamara, McCaffrey, Fournette, Eckler, Taylor, and Henry. Um, okay, I'm okay with passing on him here. Uh, I would say then that in a full PPR format, we probably want to go Lamb at uh, 112. It'll make the people happy. Well, really, it'll, the it'll also it'll the keep our mentions clean, and that's what I prefer more than anything. The uh, the 112, you know, it doesn't matter if you pick him 112 or 201. You get two picks in a row here, so whoever you want at the at the 201. Who else would you argue here for here that we left out at the turn? Well, I would, I would, I mean, I would have Harris in the first round due to the overwhelming workload and the, uh, the improvements that they made on the offensive line. I think they also want to go run heavy, the Steelers. So I think his role is safe, even though maybe he's not the greatest player in the world. Um, but, you know, the metrics that you mentioned, uh, I think he's a solid pick there uh, 
at the end of the mid, mid to late uh, first round. Um, Swift is interesting. Jones, uh, Aaron Jones, I like to get in the middle of the second round. I think he's a very nice value there. Mixon um, in PPR is a little bit different than Mixon in half PPR due to the uh, receptions issue, third down role issue there. But he was still re- really, uh, Mixon was very involved as a receiver down the stretch last year, even though he wasn't, they don't trust him in pass protection, I don't think. He's not a very good pass blocker, so that's part of the problem. But they, he still was seeing four to five catches a game uh, in the playoffs and down the stretch. So it really didn't matter. They were still targeting him. Uh, so Mi- I don't worry. You go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, Mixon is also a great hedge on the Bengals passing game. Uh, everyone talks about their improved offensive line, but then only attacks their passing game. Well, why can't it be Joe Mixon? I don't have any faith in Zach Taylor whatsoever to get the play calling right. And so I, I think Mixon actually could be a big winner here at the end of the first round. Well, Mixon has been talking about this offensive line. I mean, they made huge changes to it, and he's been talking about running through holes as wide as whatever. He's 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 excited about the offensive line, so I think he's a, you know he's one I bumped up in half PPR. I think I've got him at six. Um, you know, nice player, great offense, and uh, obviously an improved uh, offensive line. Mixon Barkley at the turn. I wouldn't mind that at all. Come late August, if that's what I'm forced to do. And with that, anything else, Paulson, to round out our top 12? Nothing to round out our top 12, but be sure to hit the site. And I put a lot of work into my draft day strategy article. It's really long. (laughs) So get a cup of coffee, read it in bunches, parts, take breaks. Uh, But it's the whole breakdown as to how I would approach fantasy drafts this year. And I talk about a bunch of different players that I like. So be sure to check that out. Normally, this is when the episode would end. But... It's a very special occasion now. It's a very special time of the year where everyone's trying to draft, and there are particular cases we actually need resolved before we actually draft these players, and I certainly can't do that myself. So I am happy to bring on Football Guy's own and my good buddy after a long poker night this past weekend, Drew Davenport. Drew, how are you doing, buddy? I'm great. I'm glad to hear that we're buddies after that game because all I remember is every time I hit a card, it was on you, so... Uh, and then there was something about Ronda Rousey, but other than that, we don't have to talk about it. I took a couple bad beats, but we are still friends in life, even though, yes, uh, every time any wrestling matches, I try to enjoy SummerSlam just peacefully, minding my own business at the card table. You would mention is Ronda Rousey wrestling every single minute. And I don't know what else to tell you besides uh, she wrestled one time, Drew. I don't know what else to tell you besides she was on for that 10 minutes and then no, she's actually not going to come back out uh. again. I take. Not, I tend to take a joke and beat it to death. So uh, apologies, that is me in a nutshell. I'm sure that won't happen at the expo. Yeah, no, no, no all. chance. Not at all. <laughs> uh, looking forward to seeing everyone there. By the way, but until then, we are not here to talk about our experience at Poker Night. We're here to talk about three players individually that have cases, court cases, up in the air, and I'm hoping to get an answer here because they matter at certain ADPs. And I want to start with the most recent breaking news and Deshaun Watson, of course, getting the ruling that he's going to get suspended for six games. 48 hours later, though, we now have the news that it's going to go instead to Goodell or whoever he appoints to make this ruling as the NFL appeals. So please walk us through this process and what you believe happens next. Yeah, the process is something that, and I keep cautioning people that we are actually, 
we're actually feeling our way through this all together because the new CBA had this new process in it that was supposed to be an independent process. I'm not really sure why it was written the way it was. Uh, I talked with uh, with Jordan McNamara, who happens to be a prosecutor, another football guy, and we've talked a little bit about this stuff. The way the CBA was written, it was super vague. You know, if it was if it were to be uh, th- if that were a law and it were challenged to the, uh, to a uh, an appeals court, it might even be considered unconstitutionally vague. So they did a poor job of writing the stuff in there. They've created this problem on their own, and now they've created another problem because they supposedly have an independent process, but yet that independent process can sort of be trampled by Goodell on appeal. So here we are trying to figure this all out. Uh, we're walking through it together. But what's happened is the NFL has filed their appeal. We just got that literally before we came on the air that they filed the appeal and that, um, you know, then there will be a chance for Watson's team and the NFLPA to respond and file a brief themselves. And everybody says, well, how long is this appeal process? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know that definitively, but I would say that it's going to happen fairly quickly uh, before the season starts that we're going to get an answer on the appeal itself. The problem is from that point forward, there is a decent chance that Watson's team is then going to run to federal court and file suit for a stay on the execution of the punishment. Now, in the past, they've tried to get into court by basically uh, arguing either antitrust or due process issues. And one of the reasons that I thought that they might not appeal was because the whole point of the new CBA and this new independent process was to avoid some of those arguments and avoid having to run to federal court every time a punishment decision came down. And I thought the NFL might respect that by not appealing, but that's not happened. The NFL appears set to try to trample all over this process and give them a year. So it might end up in a, in a federal court battle and that's going to be really interesting. Does this potential back and forth that you're predicting between Watson's side and the NFL mean he could play in week one, or does that mean he has to continue sitting out beyond week six? Yeah, I think it means he could play. And what I look hmm. towards is the Ezekiel uh, Elliott case where he got into federal court and it took about 10 weeks into the season. I believe we were in week 10 or 11 before Zeke ended up getting his suspension because uh, he withdrew, I believe, I think he withdrew a suit in that in that situation. But they argued back and forth. There was stay on this side, stay on that side, and then punishment reinstated, then punishment stayed. So that could be where we are again. And and again, it just blows my mind that all the smart people working for a billion, multi-billion dollar organization like the NFL couldn't have seen this coming. But maybe it was by design because, again, he gets six games and, 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 and Judge Robinson – you know, her decision was really buttoned up and she gave really strong arguments as to why the due process matters here. And the NFL is just trampling all over that right now. So gosh, I, I don't know. And, and let me, let me say one other thing, John, real quick, because what happened last time that they went into federal court was that the court said, yeah, you signed a CBA. This is your problem. And I'm not sure. So sure that that's not going to happen again, because this was collectively bargained. The, the, the courts don't really want to step in on a collectively bargained issue with a union and just start busting things up. So they may, they may say the same thing again, like, Hey, sorry, you signed it. You're stuck with it. Do you think there's a situation if he does open the year as the starter that the rug is pulled out from fantasy players and suddenly a ruling comes down post September that after six to 10 weeks, Watson is no longer available in season. 
I do think that's possible. And that's what I'd be really concerned about because one of the reasons that I was taking him in bigger tournaments or, you know, best ball was that I thought that if he got a suspension, he'd be available there for the critical weeks at the end of the season, playoff weeks, things like that. But now it appears that that might be a mistake because the amount of time it took for us to get the original decision and then now the appeals process and then I'm sure federal courts coming. Yeah, this is going to stretch into the season very easily. Now, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, it could stretch into 2023. Well, that's possible, but I'm much more concerned about it dropping in the middle of the year. Uh, but, I, you know, the more I think about it, perhaps this is the NFL's way to say, hey, we were tough and we got more because they're able to reach an agreement with Watson. I'm, I'm wondering if the back channel might come into play here. I have two versions of the Browns team preview written on the site for everyone. Initially released the Jacoby Brissett all year long version and then edited it to have the Deshaun Watson is available for or suspended for six games version. So both of these exist now. And I'm curious, since we know it matters most to have skin of the game here with Watson's ADP settling around the 10th, 11th round. Is this a situation where you were targeting him? You mentioned earlier drafting him post-six-game suspension immediately for best ball leagues, deep FFPC leagues, or is that an ADP around situation where you're actually avoiding him now? Now, now I am. With the appeal, I definitely am because, yeah, I, I, I don't. My problem is I don't know how you stack the team. Then, uh, st when I'm talking about team, I mean my uh, fantasy team. I don't know how you stack your fantasy team having to invest a tenth or eleventh round pick on Watson. I'm not sure that he's going to be that critical for you. Again, I was I was doing a lot more of it in big tournaments, that kind of thing, uh, like Scott Fishbowl, stuff like that. And I just don't know that there's value there in the 10th or 11th round. That seems too high to me. There's too many players I still want at that point in the draft to take a, to take a chance on a guy that has such an uncertain future. I know it could be great early on, and I know a lot of people like to make the argument that that when you win early, it certainly helps your chances. Uh, I know that the win rates or playoff rates with early wins in the early part of the fantasy season are important. So I, I get all the angles there. It's just not for me. I, I'm a risk-averse fantasy drafter for the most part, and that that's not for me right now. Another player that I believe it has his ADP being depressed due to a lingering court case and people are uncertain of is Dalvin Cook right now going around the end of the first round when if he's cleared completely and that's why I'm curious to get your thoughts on it I believe he should be the fifth overall player off the board and should be argued alongside at least to Fawn Diggs and Jamar Chase at that number five spot having seen he's been top five in touches per game in the last three years at the position and more importantly we all talk about Kevin O'Connell and coming from the RAN system that led the league in 11 personnel last year and thus boosting Justin Jefferson as the potential overall wide receiver one, Adam Thielen, KJ Osborne. But it's also Dalvin Cook who's quietly averaged 5.1 yards per carry from 11 personnel in his career. And so what now is Dalvin Cook's lingering situation headed into week one? Yeah, I like the fantasy implication here that you just brought up about the 11 personnel. Maybe he sees fewer stacked boxes. I think that he's in a position for uh, some maybe some positive touchdown regression based on his touches inside the 10 and five yard line last year. But beyond that, the legal stuff, you know, I will say this, that the civil cases themselves don't tend to draw the attention of the league. Um, now, I know that's funny saying that coming off the Watson case, but the civil cases, they generally want these things to play out if there's a lot in controversy here. And what I mean by that is as soon as this stuff broke and as soon as 
the uh, the plaintiff, uh, Graceland Trimble, his former uh, girlfriend, as soon as she filed suit, Cook pushed back immediately. He filed his own suit in another county, which is another story altogether. But then he also filed a reply saying this is defamatory for X, Y, and Z reasons. And on top of that, this was an abusive relationship from your end. And she, to that end, she filed her own, uh, or excuse me, uh, Cook filed his own uh, addendum to one of the complaints that had some testimony from his grandmother about the fact that she had been, uh, Graceland Trimble had been abusive towards him. So what I mean is, and the reason I tell you all that is because this is an extremely messy situation. And if we're talking about current legal situations like Watson, Kamara, Cook, Cook by far has the lowest risk factor with the legal situation as it stands right now. I've been gobbling up Cook at the end of the first round for a while now. That's still where I'm at. They have set a jury trial date, and I think this is the most important part. They've set a jury trial date for uh, April of 23, stretching into the beginning of May of 23. So I can't see a reason why Cook would want to settle that during this season unless something you know, were to, were to happen. But I think that this case has the possibility of going to trial, or maybe they settle behind the scenes. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. Discovery still going on, and there's some deadlines coming up in, in the fall for the case. There's just a lot of civil maneuverings behind the scenes right now. I just don't see it happening until 23. We see eye to eye as Dalvin Cook is a strong mid to late first rounder. Not so much on how many times Ronda Rousey wrestles in one evening. And <laughs> finally, you for, said it, not me. <laughs> for Alvin Kamara, that's also, I think, not as sloppy as the Sean Watson situation. But the most recent update we have is that yet again, this court case got pushed back to, I believe, September 30th, right? Uh, it's uh 29th. Yeah. Same thing. 29th. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, into the season, that's the whole point here. And so right now, where does this case sit in your view? And is this a situation also where we could lose Camara three, four weeks into the season if this case isn't pushed back again? I think that's possible, but unlikely. So I, I have some guy on Twitter. I just want to put this information out there because I operate under the uh, belief that you know what I know. There's a guy on Twitter who's a lawyer who says that he's talked to some folks in confidence about the situation, that maybe there's going to be some sort of misdemeanor plea deal on the table. And what I've said all along is that the only way that Kamara can settle this case, because he's kind of painted into a corner just like the state is. And one, one thing that I've cautioned everybody about is that it's really hard with a victim that suffered this type of injuries to offer a nice deal to these defendants. And on the other hand, it's very difficult for uh, Camara to take a deal when he knows he's going to get suspended immediately or if there's jail time involved. So it paints both sides into a corner where it's hard to, 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 to have a deal. So I don't know about the truth of what this guy's saying on Twitter. It's a random lawyer on Twitter. So let me just say that caveat. But what, I, what it brings up is a really important point. There are two factors that I think are complete X factors that we cannot account for. Number one is, why hasn't that video come out yet? And people keep asking me why. And I said, I don't know. But I'm, I'm making the analogy back to, if you remember the Tyreek Hill case, we heard some recordings of him and, we, and there was some nasty stuff going around. But when the case finally got settled, it was interesting that the NFL said they couldn't get access to any of the information that they wanted or needed to make their decision because the judge in the case had put a gag order on it and had sealed all the documents from the case. I didn't see that one coming. 
but that could be something that's going on behind the scenes. I'm not saying that is what happened, but there's a reason we haven't seen the video. I don't know what that is. But if that drops at some point, all bets are off because we know with the Ray Rice case what happens if something nasty comes out in a video. So that's caveat number one. Number two would be if Winston uh, comes in and leads the Saints to the playoffs, that's great. Maybe he wants it out past the season. But if the Saints fall apart and they're not a playoff team and there's a nice deal sitting on the table for Kamara, he could end up taking a deal and getting suspended right when we need him the most, and that's towards the end of the year. I'm not sure it's going to happen at the beginning because that 60-day status tells me that they are working on something, but that maybe it's not going to be resolved by then. I'm not considering that uh, that September 29th date to be super pivotal. Of course, it's important as to which way the case is going to go, but I'm not thinking that it's going to be settled then. So my concern is that it pushes towards the end of the season and, and maybe he says, yeah, let's get this over with. We got to deal with no jail time and, and let's do it. And then he gets suspended during the fantasy playoffs or something. That's a huge cut. Those are two huge caveats. It's still a volatile, risky play. And unfortunately in these large field best ball tournaments where you have to draft as if you're assuming your pick hits a ceiling. Like I don't worry about Javante Williams floor and perhaps splitting touches with Melvin Gordon for these large field tournaments because we're going for first place. I have to draft him as if he actually sheds Gordon for many backfield touches and then reaches his apex because that's the kind of archetype player he is. And so that's how I've been treating Kamara as well, thinking, okay, I have to pretend as if none of this matters because he's still a top 12 player if he's available all year. And so that's not the question. I actually want to then ask, are you comfortable at his ADP right now at the second, third round turn in redraft formats in home leagues, or is this a situation where you actually want to avoid thinking it could come, as you mentioned before the end of the season, any hammer that's laid down? Yeah. So I think that my, my philosophy completely switches in that respect. That's a great question because I, I, I tell people this all the time. I'm a risk-averse drafter when it comes to these first couple of rounds. And, you know, I, I believe it was the great uh, Dwayne McFarlane that said, sometimes you want to just draft in these redraft situations as if it's going to be your only team. Like, hey, if it was my only team, what would I do? And I think that's a perfect summation of it. If I was going into a league I really cared about and I really, you know, knew that this was, you know, hey, it's my home league. It's with my buddies for 20 years. I want the bragging rights, whatever the case may be. I'm not comfortable with that the end of second, early third round on Camara. Now, I suppose it's possible that I'd be all right if I went running back, running back, and then came back around in the third and saw Camara sitting there, and I thought, okay, he's my RB3, that it doesn't crush me too much. But I don't like missing out on all that wide receiver goodness there in the second and third round. So I, it just doesn't fit for me in the redraft format. I don't want that ax hanging over my head that it could fall at any moment. And I am confident in my opinion about the legal timeline. But at the same time, there are things going on behind the scenes that we have no idea about. So that X factor is something you can't account for. And I think it comes down to your risk tolerance. He is the great Drew Davenport of Football Guys. Drew, tell everyone what they can find else from you at Football Guys right now. Yeah, so I'm uh, in the middle of my Mastering the Salary Cap Draft series, uh, formerly Auction Draft, but we've switched the nomenclature over there at Football Guys. So I'm in the middle of that series. It's a seven-part series on football guys. Uh, and you can find some of my legal ramblings over on TikTok too, Fantasy Football Lawyer. And of course on Twitter, Drew Davenport FF. And I can attest the salary articles you do genuinely the best in the business. And I really do appreciate them, Drew. We'll talk to you next time. See everyone next week. Thank you, John.